Hey everyone, today we will be looking at Psalm 126. As the season of social distancing and unassembled worship begins to wind down, it's my aim to spend our remaining Sundays learning together from the book of Psalms. I'm eager for us to get back together again for a lot of reasons, uh, but one of those reasons is for us to get back into our series in 1 Corinthians and, and Ruth. But I'm confident that in this season of hiatus, the Lord has given this opportunity to us for our good, and I'm confident that he has good reasons for us to be here today. I want to start out by looking at Psalm 126, so if you join me, let's read together from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Before I get into explaining and applying this uh, blessed song to our hearts, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Spirit, I thank you that you are within us, that you are working to apply the truth of the scriptures to our lives, bringing conviction, bringing comfort, bringing correction. Father, I pray that you might convict and correct and, and uh, comfort me. As the preacher, Father, I pray that what I say and what I've planned to say might be pleasing and in line with your will. Father, I ask that where what I may say or what I may do may be a distraction or may be out of perfect focus, Father, I pray that you would correct those things in the minds of those who are hearing this morning. And Father, for each and every one of us, I pray that we would have hearts softened by your grace, such that we hear your word and that your word would go deeply within us, taking root and bearing much fruit for your glory. Father, only you can do this. This is not within the powers of any man. And so we look to you eager and joyful, knowing that today may be a day of great fruitfulness for your glory. Amen. As we are looking at the book of Psalms during this season, uh, I want to remind you that the book of Psalms is the songbook of the people of God in their gathered worship. The book of Psalms is a potent reminder that though God's people are scattered all over the globe, we are still a people who are intended to be gathered together in local bodies, in local churches. Those gatherings are centered around God as the focus of our love and our worship. There are 150 songs, 150 poems in the Psalter, and these songs run the gamut of expressing the experiences and emotions of God's people living between Eden and eternal life, between Jerusalem and New Jerusalem. Some psalms are easy to relate to, while others challenge our spiritual and emotional maturity. Like the rest of the Bible, the psalms are written by human authors, guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit. These emotional expressions are without sin and without error. Does that just strike you, an emotional expression without sin and without error? 
What a remarkable thing that is. So many of my emotional expressions are, are marked by terrible sin. But praise God, we have the Psalms without sin, without error. The Psalms are poetic songs that require proper interpretation, but we can rest assured that there is nothing but truth in this book. We have the book of Psalms so that we might know and enjoy God. It strengthens and disciplines our engagement of him and the emotional realities of who we are. It's helpful to be reminded as we come to the book of Psalms that we are emotional creatures, that God made us this way, and that emotions are not some dirty part of us that we acquired at the fall. No, the fall dirtied our emotions such that the emotional beings God made us to be is not perfect. But the book of Psalms shows us perfect emotion and perfect engagement of God. As there are many types of music, I'm sure even in your family worship this morning, there are uh, wildly different songs that those in a family may like. Uh, there are very wide varieties of music, and even amongst us as church people, there's a wide variety of church music. There's also a diversity in the Psalter. Psalm 126 is within a grouping known as the Songs of Ascent. This special grouping spans Psalms 120 through 134. And just as our hymn books may have special sections for seasons such as Easter or Christmas, the Songs of Ascent are a separate section designed for Israel to sing while traveling up to Jerusalem for important festivals like Passover. It's important and helpful for us to have these things in mind as we look at Psalm 126 because it helps us see ourselves like Israel as a people on a journey and as people who are called to persevere on our way to Zion. As Israel sang while they put one foot in front of the other on their way to Jerusalem, we too must remember and remind one another through song of the truth on our way to the holy city of God. Like Israel, we are people on a journey. As we look now at Psalm 126 specifically, let me lay this out as a main idea that I want to highlight for you. The main idea is this. The gathered saints worship God by remembering and praying with persevering faith. The main idea is this. The gathered saints worship God by remembering and praying with persevering faith. So each of my three points will work through that, that main idea. And so point number one is highlighting the idea that the gathered saints worship God. As we look at Psalm 126, we can see how this song is both a song sung to the Lord and within the worshiping community. Beginning in verse 1, we see the choice of plural. We were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. And we were filled with joy. It's clear that the psalmist is not writing a personal prayer for himself. He's not expecting this to be used in solitary monk dwellings. He's writing this for the gathered worshipers of God. 
Many of us have friends who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, yet they do not regularly gather with the saints. They don't gather with those whom God has called them to love, and they don't gather with those whom God has called to shepherd them. There are many who will speak about worshiping God alone in the woods, or on the beach, or on a surfboard, or on a fishing boat. There are still others who are busy with small children and, or job schedules that keep them from embracing a local church. While we love friends who take such a stance, or we may be tempted to join them, we must recognize that just as Jesus taught his disciples to pray with the plural, we and our, so the Bible teaches us to sing this way. It's clear that the scriptures expect a group of believers to be singing together and expects a group of believers to be praying together. And while it may be easy for us within the local church to correct those who are not currently joining others for worship, I need to highlight the fact that there are those who love Jesus and are not part of a church because of pastors like, like me or church members like you who've been downright wicked. While I want to see brothers and sisters turn from their own desires and turn to embracing God's call to gather with the saints for worship, I must also look in the mirror and I must confront you. Are you living a life that is marked by the love of Jesus for brothers and sisters? Have you been a hypocrite or sinful in such a way that you have offended and hurt those whom Jesus calls his own brothers and sisters? You and I must consider our own faults, and we must own up to our faults that we may bear in tempting or driving others away. Brothers and sisters, I know you know someone that isn't gathered with the body, and I know you know that they have issues, that there's a reason why they don't gather anymore. It's too easy for us to look at people who claim to love Jesus and say, oh, they don't love Jesus, and it's too easy for us to call them lazy. Many of these brothers and sisters, not all, but many of these brothers and sisters truly do love Jesus, and it's because they've had their trust broken. They've been hurt by brothers and sisters. I can't fix the problem, but I can own up to my own fault, and I can encourage you to own up to your own faults, to where you have been foolish, where you may have been wicked and you've hurt someone? Have you done everything within your power to reconcile to that brother or sister so that the church is not marked by your sin? Today is a good day to pray with the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Today is also a good day to remember and obey the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Brothers and sisters, every one of us has come to Christ because we know we're a sinner. And the reality of being a sinner is that we sin and we make mistakes. And sometimes the things we don't like to think about is the reality that our sins hurt people. And so if you've said things or you know that the Spirit may bring things up to you that you need to be reconciled to your brother or your sister, I want to encourage you. Have you done everything within your power 
to apologize and to reconcile to a brother or sister that maybe you've wronged or you know that there's bad blood between you. The church is a gathered body of believers, and we need to do everything within our power to make sure that this, this group of believers is able to gather together and not fractured because of sinfulness and selfishness. We not only observe that Psalm 126 reflects the assembled nature of what it means to be a child of God, but we also see that God is at the center of this gathering. Yahweh God is referenced four times in six verses. Verses 1 through 3 are a happy remembrance of God and his grace to them in in the past. Verse 4 is a prayer to God to restore that grace to them as they endure a season of sadness and sorrow. And verses 5 and 6 are a call to the saints to persevere, trusting God for future grace. While it may seem obvious to note that God is the center of the gathered worship, it is often the assumption of fundamentals that get us into serious trouble in life. It may seem foolish to remind your family and your friend to change their oil, but every day, Young cars go to an early death because people overlooked the fundamentals. They didn't take care of the basic things. Too many churches and too many Christians have built their lives upon their own wisdom instead of upon the Scriptures. Their worship is centered around their own ideas, their own creativity, their own central personality instead of God as the Scriptures lay out for us. We must regularly check our preaching, our singing, and our decision-making to prove that God is at the center of it all. We would do well in every area of our lives to heed the words of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Our own education, our own experiences, our own traditions, our own intuitions are not a fully reliable guide. But if God and his glory are central in our teaching, central in our singing, and central in our living, we can rest assured that when the rains fall and the floods come, when the winds blow and beat against us, we will not fall. God alone must be the one we worship and the reason we gather. We've looked in point one at the gathered saints who worship God. And now in point number two, I want to highlight the gathered saints worship God by remembering. By remembering. Verses one through three are a remembrance of a time in the past when God poured out a breathtaking grace upon his people. Scholars will debate whether or not this psalm is written remembering Israel's return from Babylonian exile. And one of the reasons it's difficult to know and why these scholars are debating whether or not it's written about the Babylonian exile and the return from it, it's difficult to know which it is because this song could be referencing a long list of times when God poured out his grace upon his people. They could be remembering their deliverance from Babylonian exile, or they could be remembering the exodus from Egypt or the many gracious provisions in the wilderness. It could be one of the many victories of Joshua, or the judges, or one of the kings who followed. It could be a deliverance from famine, like we saw in the book of Ruth, 
or one of God's many kindnesses that hasn't been recorded. What is clear, whether it was looking back upon the return from exile or not, what is clear is that God has lavished His grace on His people time and time again. And He's lavished it on them so richly that it has overwhelmed them with joy, such that their mouths were full of singing. This is no weak, happy birthday gift. This is a lavish grace of God that has overwhelmed them and caused them to float, as a manner of speaking, and sing and enjoy God's grace to them. It is of interest that we take note of the fact that God's kindness to his people not only filled them with joy and laughter, but that this grace of God caught the attention of those who were not of God's gathered worshipers. We see it there at the end of verse 2. We read, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. This is the people who are not Israel. This is the Gentiles. These are the people who are worshiping other gods and other things. They see the good things God has done. They hear the good news of what God has done for His people. They see God's people enjoying God. And they can't help but notice God has done great things for them. As we see this element of remembering in the saints' gathered worship of God, we would do well to ensure that our preaching and our teaching is marked by remembering the grace of God poured out for us in the past. We would do well to remember and make lists of the times God has filled our mouths with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. We can do this in moments alone. Counting your blessings is an old practice of Christians, and it's a good one. We can do this alone. We can do it with our families. But most of all, our gathered worship should be clearly built upon the remembrance of the greatest thing God has ever done in all human history. We, our worship must be centered around the remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. It needs to be centered around Jesus' ascension and his promise to return for all of his saints. This is why Brian and I work to point you to Jesus in every sermon. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. The gathered worshipers are remembering the good things God has done. There are many things great and wonderful that God has done for us. But nothing as wonderful Nothing so joy-inducing and song-producing as the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised for our justification. Christian worship is centered on God and built upon His glorious grace. And that grace is chiefly expressed to us in the atoning and reconciling death and resurrection of Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. The remembering of such grace fills us with joy. And this joy, this gospel, is a light to the nations and a pathway for the unbeliever to become part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, before I move on to point three, I want you to understand this point. The greatest source of joy that you have, that any human being has, is not in anything you can find in this world. 
the greatest source of joy, the greatest hope of happiness, the greatest source of peace and contentment is found in the gospel. Now, I know it may not feel that way all the time. You may say, feel very dull when we talk about Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. And I wish it wasn't so common in my own life that I look to the cross and I think about my sins being covered and I just feel numb. But brothers and sisters, no matter how cold the storm may be, the longer we sit by the fire, the fire is going to warm us. And it may take time for us to thaw out and to be able to feel our fingers and toes again. But brothers and sisters, if you will sit by the fire of the gospel, it will warm you and it will warm your heart and it will bring you joy. Don't give up and don't stop, pers- don't stop persevering to believe that the gospel is the greatest source of joy. And your enjoyment of it is so important that the, us enjoying the gospel, us enjoying the great things God has done is also a pathway for unbelievers to come and to see the goodness of God. There are consequences for your own joy, but there are consequences for those around us if we aren't enjoying Jesus. And so while we may think of evangelism as something we go out to do, and and I'm not going to take away from that at all, evangelism and taking the good news to the nations is something we do. But the enjoyment of God within the local church is part of what God has designed as the highway for the nations, for the unbeliever to come and to know God. Point number three, we've looked at the gathered saints are gathered together to worship God. We've looked at how that worshiping God involves remembering and now I want to highlight that the gathered saints worship God by remembering and praying with persevering faith. Praying with persevering faith. Psalm 126 works like a door, a door with two sides and a hinge in the middle. Instead of a door with an inside and an outside, it's a door with the past on one side and the future on the other. And this door with the past on one side and the future on the other has a hinge that moves us from the past to the future. And that hinge is found in a prayer written in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The first half of this prayer is the psalmist's longing for better days. Isn't that true of your prayer life? It's so true of mine that so much of my prayer life is longing for better days. Maybe better days in the past, maybe better days in the future, but it's longing for better days. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. We are given a song to sing that presents these requests to God. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire the psalmist to complain to his co-workers or his friends or his family. He didn't give us a pattern of wishing for better days. This psalm does not call the saints to join the choir in blaming other people for our bad days. The psalmist is having a bad day, he's feeling the badness of that day, and he cries out to God for restoration of his fortune. The psalmist feels the weight and the frustration and the fear and the sorrow of his days, and he cries out to God for grace. He knows God is gracious in the midst of his pain, and he cries out to God for help. 
This prayer is not simply a prayer for restoration, of asking God to restore the fortune or restore the goodness of their days. Now, verse 4 ends the prayer with the vibrant simile, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Some translations you may be looking at this morning will render that Hebrew word as either the Negev with a V or even as the South. And while our Bible translations may vary, there is no doubt what the psalmist is getting at. The Negev is a region in the southern portion of Israel that was largely barren and desert-like. Very little grows in arid regions like this. But when the rains come and the streams flow in the Negev, the Negev becomes a place of rich life and abundant color. Have you ever seen what happens to a desert when the rains come, flowers come, life springs up out of so many places? It's truly a remarkable thing when the Negev runs with streams of water. The psalmist is lifting up his soul that feels like a desert. And he asks for God's grace to flow to and through him so that he might enjoy eternal life and abundant joy. When you compare this godly pattern of praying to our own all-too-common patterns of complaining and wishing and blaming, which is sweeter to you? Do you have a spouse that runs to prayer? Or are you married to someone who runs to complaining and wishing things would get better? Or blaming other people? for the situation that they're in? Would you rather spend time with a friend who wants to pray about stuff instead of gossiping or slandering or, or complaining about stuff? Which is more beautiful to you? Complaining or praying? Worshiping or wishing? Blaming or looking to the Lord for grace? Which is more attractive and appealing? When the Spirit helps us walk in godliness, He not only guides us in paths of righteousness and truth, but those paths are also paths of beauty and sweetness. Those paths are appealing. I hope that you will see this and be attracted to a life of prayer. And I pray that as we grow in the beauty of godliness, the nations will see and come to rejoice with us. Holiness is not simply being right. Holiness is about being beautiful. God is not simply right and just in all His ways. God is full of beauty. As the poet leaves his prayer, he turns in faith to encourage the saints to persevere. In verses 5 and 6, he uses the images of the farmers planting and reaping and the images of seed that is sown and the sheaves that are harvested. The remembering of God's past grace and the pouring out of a prayer has led us to the reminder that God's goodness is revealed to us in varied seasons, yet His goodness never fails. We are fed because God has designed the sun and the soil and the seed to faithfully work for our good, but He has also appointed a season for everything. There is a season to plant and a season to harvest. God has appointed a season for everything and a time for every matter under heaven. God has appointed a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. 
The psalmist beautifully paints a picture of hope in the midst of sorrow by pointing to the process of farming. These images help us endure hardship with persevering faith. You and I will experience desert-like seasons of sorrow and longing for grace. But knowing that God's goodness is not fickle and the grace we have received in the past can help us look forward to future grace. The psalmist helps us see our sorrows and see our joys like a farmer sees seasons of planting and seasons of reaping. There is a season, there is a time for you to go through sorrows and for you to go through hardships. And there will be times when you will go through joys. If I can say go through, you will have to endure happiness. You and I will endure by remembering God's love endures forever. Your endurance is built upon the reality that God's love does not fail. Jesus saw this too when he spoke of his own death, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And because of this, you and I can know that those who love God can watch everything work together for their good. And when Paul writes in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He helps us sing with the psalmist not just poetic words, but he helps us see these poetic words as words of promise. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Brothers and sisters, you may find yourself in the middle of a very, very, very long winter. The kind of winter where nothing grows. As I was thinking about this passage this week and preparing to speak about it, I couldn't help but think about where I grew up in southern Minnesota. The landscape is dramatically different depending on when you go. If you go to Fairmont, Minnesota in February, everything is bleak. There are no green leaves. There are no green plants. If you can see a field, if it's not covered with snow, that field is dead and black. There is nothing growing there that you can see. But if you were to come to southern Minnesota in July you would see all of the trees in vibrant green. All of those fields would be full of green soybeans and corn. That place would be so full of life. Brothers and sisters, you may be in a season of great greenness. Enjoy it. Understand it and praise God. Worship Him for that grace. But know that seasons of winter will come. And if you're in a season of winter... Don't believe for a second that God will not grant you a spring, that God will not grant you a July full of green and full of growth and full of joy. This is the reality of what the psalmist is helping us see. God's goodness endures forever. It goes through seasons and it goes through cycles in the way that God's goodness reveals itself to us. But you can rest assured that you will have seasons of sowing and seasons of reaping. 
God's past grace to us in Christ should give us daily confidence, whether we are laughing or whether we are weeping, that he has future grace for us. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to worship him as a gathered family. He has given us the gospel of Christ not only to save us, but to be a reminder of his lavish grace. And remembering this grace fuels and directs us to prayer and perseverance through faith that his grace will meet us in every season. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that you love the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 126 would be a guide to shape you in your love and your emotional embrace of God. The Lord is good, and I'm so thankful for his word. Let's pray God's blessing on this word. Father, I thank you for your help. I thank you for the Spirit's promise to do a work in every believer, to do a work in everyone you choose to do, whether a preacher does well or doesn't. Father, I thank you that ultimately uh, my role as a clay jar is not inhibited at all by your power. Father, I ask that the beauty and the glorious gospel would be clearly seen in Psalm 126. And I pray, Father, that we would love and enjoy Jesus all the more because of how we have seen him here today. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would work in them for your glory and for their joy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.